Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you this morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, I especially want to say welcome to you. We'd love to get to know you, love to help you get plugged into the community here. Uh, like Andy was saying, one of the best ways to do that is to check out a small group. Uh, you can find all the info about that, like Andy was saying, on our website or by finding one of the friendly faces or somebody who looks like they know where the bathrooms are. We'd love to help you get plugged in here. So, uh, Also love to help you, uh, just in, want to invite you into our new sermon series this spring and summer. Uh, we're calling it Jesus on Every Page. And we're going to be taking a look throughout the summer at a bunch of different passages in the Old Testament. Some you may have heard of, some you probably haven't, but... And highlighting how all of them aren't ultimately just about teaching us what we should or shouldn't be doing or, or who we should or shouldn't be like, but instead they're actually meant to point us towards uh, the person and the work of Jesus. And, and the idea that the whole Bible is all about Jesus, including the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, uh, that's not something I came up with. It's not something some real smart pastor or theologian, some idea they invented, but as we saw, it's something Jesus teaches himself in John chapter 5. He tells the religious leaders that the Old Testament scriptures that they testify about him and he says to them that Moses specifically wrote about him. Later in Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus explains to his disciples what's said about him throughout the scriptures and, and he helps them to see him as the point of them all. But, but just to be clear, even though we're calling our series Jesus on every page, uh, it's not like Jesus' name is somehow like secretly written on every page, right? This isn't like a Nicolas Cage nationalist treasure type situation where there's like an invisible like map to the gospel on the back of some KJV version of the Bible or something like that. Like that's, that's not what we're talking about. Um, instead, like Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in her book, The Jesus Storybook Bible, she says it this way, the Bible is a story and at the center of that story is Jesus. Every story in it whispers his name. He's like the missing piece of the puzzle and all that makes all the other pieces fit together so that it reveals the beautiful picture God intended. See, Jesus is at the center of all of it. We saw last week as we began our study in Genesis chapter 4 with the quintessential Mother's Day passage about two feuding brothers in, in, uh, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 4. We saw how after sin entered the world, Adam and Eve's rejection of God through his, his good rule and authority in their lives, sin keeps spreading. It keeps spreading like a disease that seems unstoppable. It consumes individuals and families and societies. And and yet in the midst of sin's destructive spread, we saw this glimmer of hope in the, in the line of Seth, right? Because the passage didn't end with Cain's sin and Abel's death. It ends by telling us about another son that God gives to Adam and Eve, one who would carry, whose line would carry on God's promise that he made to them in chapter 3, that one day a Savior would come who would crush the head of Satan and that he would defeat Satan and sin and death altogether. So there's this glimmer of hope that we get for the gospel at the end of Genesis chapter 4. But, but what we see pretty quickly is that that's just a glimmer. Because when you keep reading the book of Genesis, you find that after Cain kills his brother Abel, sin wasn't done spreading. Things go from bad to worse and get worse further still until all of it kind of reaches rock bottom in Genesis chapter 6 where we read in verse 5 that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. And that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. And so because God is good and just, he can't just stand by and let sin run rampant, destroying everything in his world and his creation. So he steps in and he intervenes by sending a flood to deal with the problem of sin 
And essentially to kind of hit the reset switch on humanity by starting over with one of Seth's descendants, a guy named Noah, who we read in chapter 6, walked faithfully with God. And God rescues Noah and his family along with the the animals from from this great flood. But as we'll see this morning, the, the flood didn't get rid of sin altogether. The flood didn't stop the problem of sin. It didn't fix it altogether because what the flood didn't do was it didn't get rid of every sinner. And it's in the context of this tension where sin is still present even after the flood and this tension of God's just judgment of sin that remains even after it. It's in that tension that we see God making another promise promise that's not only going to set the stage for the restoration of the world after the flood, but a promise that's going to set the stage for how God would one day solve the problem of sin altogether. It's such a cool passage. I can't wait to show it to you this morning. Um, but with that in mind, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Look for Jesus on every page. God, thanks so much for you and for our time together in your word this morning. And we're just so grateful, Jesus, that that all the stories in the Old Testament, they're not just morals and they're not just lessons to learn, but ultimately they point us to you, Jesus. They leave us longing for you. And so God, we come this morning with the, just like the, the glorious beauty of hindsight. And we get to see what all these passages were foreshadowing. We get to look back and see Jesus as the center of all of it. And, and so God, might you help us this morning. Um, Help us to see Jesus as the point of the story. Help us to see him as the reason for hope and as the thing the stories leave us longing for. And that we can see him in the rearview mirror this morning. Might it bring joy and life that just morals and rule keeping never can. And so we need you for that. God, we need you to show us your son in the passage. We need you to make him beautiful to us so that our lives and our hearts might be captivated by him and that we might live for your glory. And so uh, I can't make that happen, but you can. I pray that you would, God. Amen. Like I said this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 8 and 9. We pick up Noah's story right after the floods have ended and the waters have receded and Noah and his family and all the animals have just gotten off the ark. We pick up the the story in chapter 8 verse 20. It begins this way. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and he said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And the fear and the dread of all will fall on the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea that are given into your hands. For everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that still has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I'll demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. For whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful, increase in number, multiply on the earth, and increase upon it. 
And God said to Noah and his sons with him, I'll now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between you and me and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it, and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on earth. And so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, and these were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. And Noah was a man of the soil, and he proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. And they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. And their faces were turned the other way so they wouldn't see their father's nakedness. And when Noah woke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Cain, and the lowest of slaves will be his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem, and may God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years. And then he died. All right, so as we take a look at this passage, the thing that kind of pulls all of it together is this theme of commitment. See, we, we all want to be in committed relationships with people that are committed to us. And whether that's in friendship or in marriage or even in business, when we, we do all kinds of things to ensure the committedness of those relationships. As, as kids, right, you pinky swear, right? You make your friends pinky swear with you, right? You, you make friendship bracelets or you create secret passwords and handshakes. Like Emma is the queen of secret passwords and handshakes. Like she just, she just loves that stuff, right? But those things, they're, they're about being committed to one another. In marriage, you make vows and you articulate that you're committed to each other, not just in the good times, right, but for better or worse, for richer, for poor. In, in business, you sign contracts. I remember when we moved into this space, we had to sign a, a very lengthy contract, right? And it was about us being committed to paying the rent here and, and the landlord being committed to letting us, not kicking us out if we did, and to keeping the building in running condition. See, the reason why we want to be in committed relationships is because there's safety and there's security inside the context of that kind of a relationship. And yet, as much as we try, none of our relationships are really characterized by, by the perfect commitment that we're looking for. Our friends, our spouses, our business partners, they aren't perfect. They let us down. And yet, in our passage this morning, we see a God who is perfectly committed to his creation. 
don't know if you noticed this, but as we read, there was this word that kept getting repeated. It was the word covenant. It's in there at least eight times in the passage. That language of covenant, that's the Bible's language for relationship and devotion and commitment, for oneness. And the theme of of covenant is this theme that runs throughout the course of Scripture. It's one of the most prevailing themes in all of the Bible. It's it's really hard to overemphasize how central and how important that theme is to the story of God's Word. In fact, we're going to see it a number of more times as we continue study the Old Testament later this summer. But, but as we take a look at this covenant God makes with Noah in chapter 8 and 9 of Genesis, we're going to see God showing how committed he is to his relationship with, with his creation. And God's covenant with Noah is this promise of commitment that, that's critically foundational because not only does it set the stage for the restoration of the world after the flood, what it does is that it actually sets the stage for showing us how God's one day going to solve the problem of sin once and for all. And so as we take a look at this covenant God makes, this promise of commitment and relationship that he makes with Noah and with the, the rest of creation, we're going we're to see three things. We're going to see the need for this covenant, we're going to see the terms of this covenant, and then we're going to see the sign of the covenant. So first, right, the need for the covenant, right? All, all covenants, they arise out of need, right? Covenant's a binding agreement between two or more parties, and it brings them into this committed relationship with one another. And, and we make covenants because by default, we are not committed people, right? We're not committed to one another. We're instead committed to ourselves. And any of you who has a two-year-old, you know this very intently, because every two-year-old ever is as deeply committed to other people sharing with them as they are committed to never sharing with anyone else, right? That's how every two-year-old works, right? So you don't make covenants because everyone really just is super kind and generous towards other. You make covenants because our default mode is selfness. We make covenants not for the good times. We make them for the bad times when things are difficult and hard. Right? You promise in your marriage to stay with one another for better or worse, for richer, for poorer. When you sign up to pay a mortgage and to get a loan from the bank, you don't just say like, hey, when I get a raise, I'll pay. You say whether I'm employed or whether I get laid off. Right? For all the seasons, I'm committed to this. So what we need, the question you've got to ask then is, what's the need that prompts God's covenant with Noah? Right? What's the need for this covenant? And it's simply this, even after the flood, sin is still a problem. Sin's still a problem. The flood got rid of a lot of sinners, but it did not get rid of sin. We read in, verse 20, uh, in verses 20 through 23, just as soon as Noah could grow some grapes, he got drunk and naked. His son Ham comes in, sees him in all his naked stupor, right? And, and goes and tells his brother. And some commentators seem to think that the passage infers that Ham did more than just see his father naked. But whatever happened, it's clear that Ham humiliated and disgraced his, his father and that he sought to make his brothers a party to that kind of shame and dishonor that was there. And so sin is still alive and well after the flood, and so is the curse of sin, which is death, because even though Noah lives a real long time, the passage still ends with the fact that he died. You see, the flood didn't solve the problem of sin. He didn't fix it entirely. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the flood was a one-time response to a particularly dire situation, but all it did was treat an especially bad set of symptoms. See, the need for the covenant arises because sin survived the flood. And the reason why sin survived the flood is because sin is not out there. It's in here. 
chapter 8, verse 21, we see God thinking about the promise he's going to make to Noah. And he says, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. So you have to see this. It wasn't outside influence that caused Noah and his sons to sin after the flood. Right? God had removed all of the bad influences. There, there weren't any more bad influences around. And yet sin still survived. See, because sin is not out there, it's deep in our hearts. And it's so important that you see that because it's so easy for us to believe this lie that like, the way you avoid sin is by avoiding sinful people. Right? If you can just kind of seclude yourself enough, if you can put up enough walls, if you can make enough barriers, if you can kind of just like keep yourself like out from the pollution just enough, then, then that's how you're going to keep you safe and your family safe and your kids safe. And, and the problem with that thinking is not only that history has repeatedly and endlessly proven that that doesn't work, the, problem, the real problem is, is that that's not even possible. See, because wherever you go, your sinful heart goes with you. Just like Noah's sinful heart took him through the flood. One commentator summed it up this way. He said, the flood could wipe, out, could wipe away particular evil societies from the earth, but it could not wipe away evil because that lives in every human heart because of sin. See, in order to destroy evil by force, it would be necessary to destroy all people, not just most of them. Even the most righteous would still have to die. And so there's this tension that exists even after the flood because God is a just and good king. Sin must be judged. And so God comes and he intervenes and he says, I will make a covenant, I will make a promise that although I must judge sin, I won't do it this way again. I won't do it this way again. And that brings us to the terms of God's covenant. See, every covenant has terms. right? It lists the things that are being promised and who they're being promised to and, and what the conditions of those promises are. We see the terms of God's covenant with Noah in verses 9 and 10. He says, I'll now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and, and with, the living, with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I'll establish my covenant with you and never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again where there'll be a flood to destroy the earth. See, the first thing that we see of the terms of God's covenant is the, is the participants in the covenant. God lists himself on one side of the agreement and everyone and everything on the other side. Right? He makes this covenant with Noah and his descendants and with every generation and with all the creatures and all the animals, with every living thing. Right? And, and this is what it's known as an unlimited covenant because it applies to everyone and everything. You see, my marriage covenant with my wife, for example, that's a limited covenant. It's between me and her, right? There aren't any other names on that list. This is not Utah, right? Like, this is, like there's a limited section to this covenant, right? See, the next thing that you see, though, is not just the participants. You, you, see the, you, see the, you see the promise of the covenant. God says, never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And again, what God's doing here is he's saying, I'm not going to judge sin like this again. 
I'm not going to do it this way again. No matter how bad it gets, I'm never going to wipe out everyone and everything. No more do-overs. This was it. And that's obviously really good news for you and for me. But that was even way better news to Noah. See, without God's covenant to never destroy the earth, Noah and his family, they could never have done what God commanded them to do. Right? He tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And if you are constantly looking over your shoulder, wondering, have things got bad enough again? Have we, have we finally crossed that line again? Have we messed up bad enough finally again? Then you could never do that. You'd just be full of anxiety and PTSD, right? Like we make it like two whole chapters into the Bible the first time sin destroys things. You make it a half a chapter, like a half a chapter after the flood and sin's already destroying things again. See, the, the flood proved that God was faithful to keep his promises to justly judge sin. And yet the covenant is the reminder of a God who keeps his promises, but he makes a new promise. That yes, he will judge sin, but he won't do it this way again. He's never going to wipe out all life again. And yet what's even better than the promise of God's covenant are the conditions. You see the participants, you see the, you see the promise, and you see the conditions. I don't know if you, if when you were reading, if you noticed the conditions. Uh, you probably didn't because there, there actually aren't any conditions to God's covenant. God says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And then he just says, I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain no matter what. I'm going to be faithful no matter what. The covenant isn't based on the fact that humanity is going to do better again this next time, right? Like God's not under the delusion that like, okay, first time things went badly. Second time, like I'm really, like I'm, I'm rooting for you guys. Like I really am confident. I think you're going to do better this time, right? Like we're, you learned your lesson for sure. Like we, it's got to be better, right? No, that's not what happens. God says specifically his covenant is made in the spite of the fact that he knows it won't go better, right? Chapter eight, verse 21, he says, even though... Every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. God is not under some delusion that like, hey, it's just going to magically work out this time. His covenant is based, is based in the face of our failures. See, and because the conditions of God's covenant are based solely on his faithfulness and not ours, what that means, the reason why that's such good news is because it means that Noah can't mess it up. And his kids couldn't mess it up. And the, the rebellious Israelites couldn't mess it up. And the dysfunctional Corinthian church couldn't mess it up. And you and I cannot mess it up. Because it's not based on our faithfulness. It's based on his. This kind of a covenant is not just unlimited. It's unconditional. And the reality is that only God can make those kinds of covenants. We moved into this space. We, we signed a very conditional covenant. Right? And the, cov the conditions of our covenant were that, uh, with, like the contract that we made here to, to rent this place, was that we would pay the rent. And if we don't pay the rent, then we get kicked out. I remember literally, there's a, I remember reading it very closely with Aaron the first time. There's literally a line in the first one that we signed that said, if war breaks out, you still have to pay. Right? And we were just like, I, okay, I guess, uh, I, sure, we'll deal with that when the time comes, I guess, right? See, but God's covenant is different. Right? There aren't two sides to it. There's one side. It's not contingent on our faithfulness. It's contingent on his. Not Noah's, not his kids, not mine, not yours. One commentator, he refers to this. Commentators refer to this kind of covenant as a covenant of grace. It's not one God had to make. He didn't owe it to anybody. Nobody deserved it. It's one that's pure grace See, the terms of God's covenant with Noah are good news. 
You, you can't get better terms than that. It's the kind of covenant you like run for a pen so you can sign before it gets like, was this, was this a miracle? Is it too good to be true? See, the question, though, of the terms of God's covenant, they, the question that they leave you with, though, is that how can God make that kind of a covenant and still be just? See, and the answer to that question comes in the sign of the covenant. Verses 12 through 13, they show us the sign of God's covenant with Noah. Every covenant has a sign. It's an outward sign or a symbol that serves as a, a reminder that a covenant was entered into. If you're married, right, that's your wedding ring, right? If, if it's a business license that you have, it's your business license that's up on the front of your building, right? See, the sign of God's covenant we see in the passage is the rainbow. And it's not the first rainbow. Rather, what we see is that God's infusing meaning into it. One commentator puts it this way. says, the designation of the rainbow as the sign of the covenant doesn't suggest that it was the first rainbow ever seen. But rather, the function of a sign is connected to the significance attached to it. God's saying, I'm never going to flood the earth again like I did. See, similarly, the sign of a, of a wedding shows the significance, right? Rings are both valuable and circular, right? Which means that they don't end. And so when you look at your wedding ring, it's, it's significant but it, because it's a reminder of the value of the covenant you've made with your spouse and of the terms of that commitment that it's an, it doesn't end. And so what's the significance of the sign of God's covenant with Noah, the rainbow? Well, our translation kind of obscures that significance a little bit. In verse 14, it reads, God says, I've set my rainbow in the clouds. But literally, the text actually reads, it says, I have set my bow in the clouds. And yes, God is indeed referring to the rainbow. There's not some other kind of weird bow that's like floating around that he was talking about like that. It is talking about the rainbow. But the significance of the sign of the bow Right, is because that, that word that's being used there right, is the Hebrew word that refers to a war bow or a battle bow. And the significance of the sign of the bow in the sky is the idea that God has laid down his war bow in the heavens. You see, in the ancient world, a drawn bow is the ultimate sign of, of hostility. And yet God is saying, I have laid down my bow. It's not pointed at you anymore. This bow that was one of hostility has now become a sign of peace. A sign that God's hung up his bow against those who have made him an enemy, and he instead shows them peace instead of hostility. See, the idea of the rainbow that God points out to Noah is what he's trying to help him see, and all who would look at it again, is that when we're supposed to see in the rainbow and be reminded of our sin, we're supposed to be reminded that we should all be dead because of sin, that the rain shouldn't have stopped, and that the flood water should not have received, and that no one, including Noah and all his family, should have been spared from that great judgment of sin. And yet instead of crushing all of his enemies, God chooses instead to make peace. And God shows favor to Noah, not because he earned it, not because he deserved it, but he shows Noah favor because of his grace. And yet the significance of the sign of the rainbow is greater than Noah or the readers of Genesis could even have known. See, because it wasn't just a sign meant to remind people of God's promise not to deal with sin by flooding the world again. It was a foreshadowing, a picture of the way that he would solve the problem of sin once and for all. 
the great preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he, he explains it this way. He says, the reason that God is able to lay up his bow is because it is pointed up towards heaven. See, in the flood, God had aimed his wrath against sin down on man, and yet in the rainbow, God foreshadows the direction his wrath for sin will ultimately go. The rainbow isn't just a sign of God's promise to never again deal with human sin by flooding the world. It's an indication of how he would deal with it in the end. Spurgeon says it this way, God has not stopped being a God of judgment. He has not stopped being a God of wrath, but now the the but now God's aiming his arrows of wrath somewhere else. They're going into someone else. See, at the heart of the rainbow is this foreshadowing of the way God would deal with sin, ultimately in the person and the work of Christ. You see, God is saying, I'm never going to destroy the earth again. I'm never going to judge sin like that. I'm not going to get justice for sin by judging sinners with a flood. I'm going to get justice for sin I'm going to shoot the arrows of my wrath into my own son. See, and that's what the cross really is. On the cross, Jesus is absorbing the arrows of God's just wrath for your sin and for mine. He's absorbing God's wrath for our rejection and our rebellion against his true authority. We saw in John, the good news of the gospel is not merely that God wipes your slate clean. It's not merely that he just forgives you. Forgive and forget, don't worry about it. But the good news of the gospel is that God pays the penalty for your sin himself. And he marks it as paid in full by the blood of Christ. Tim Keller, he writes it this way. He says, on the cross, Jesus went into the storm of God's wrath. He got the lightning so that you and I might get the rain. He got the lightning so you and I might get the rainbow. And when you see that, it's the point of the story. When you see it leaves you longing for a way God might deal with the problem of sin without crushing every sinner, then it's good news to you. Then the story of Noah gets to be good news because the reality is that God doesn't want to terrify us into obeying him. He wants to love us into obeying him. He wants to lead us into a life of hope and joy that doesn't come out of fearfulness, but that comes out of love. That's why the ultimate answer to the, to the, to the problem of sin, one commentator says, wasn't more floods and more judgment, but was instead the cross. You see, fear is this incredibly powerful motivator. It does incredible things in our lives, but fear never lasts. It's just like a very temporary thing. See, grace and love are more powerful motivators. They transform and they last. They don't just mitigate circumstances. See, the cross is this reminder to us of how committed God is to his relationship with us. And it's his gracious commitment to us that enables and empowers our commitment to him. Since it's God's gracious commitment that we're reminded of in the sign of his covenant with Noah, and it's God's gracious commitment to us that we're reminded of in the sign of his new covenant with us through Christ. Matthew chapter 26 says it this way, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, 
When they had given thanks, he said to them, Drink from this, all of you. This is the, my blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the rainbow was the sign of God's covenant of grace with Noah. And communion is the sign of the, God's covenant of grace through Christ with us. And what we're doing in this communion is remembering God's covenant of grace through faith in Jesus. We're reminding ourselves that, that what we should have gotten, what we really deserve, is God's wrath for our sin. And instead, what we get is his grace through his son. That Jesus absorbed all of God's just wrath for our sin so that in wiping out sin one day, God would not also have to wipe out every sinner. And the bread and the drink, they remind us of Jesus' body, his blood that was broken and shed for us so that God might be both the just judge of sin and the gracious savior of sinners. See, what we're doing in communion is we're proclaiming the gospel. We're reminding ourselves about who God is and about who we are because of his grace. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you any more than wearing a wedding ring makes you married. Instead, it's a sign. It's a picture of the covenant God's made with us. See, but unlike God's covenant of grace with Noah, this new covenant in Christ requires that you respond See, the conditions of this new covenant are that we must put our faith in Jesus. That we must receive the gift of salvation he gives. And we must let him pay the penalty for our sins. See, the covenant is, this new covenant is limited to those who receive it by faith. And so if you put your trust in Jesus, if his blood and his body broken is the sign of your covenant with him through faith. Where you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's two tables, one on the left and on the right. You can dip the bread in the juice as this joyful reminder of all you put your faith in Jesus to be and to do for you. You, you don't have to be a member here. You just have to belong to him. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you're still figuring out who he is and what it means to follow him. You still have questions. You still have doubts. You're still figuring that stuff out. I just want you to know how welcome you are here. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that is dependent on him And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And the covenant of grace he extends to you on the cross that was foreshadowed in the rainbow, he offers it to you this morning. And so wherever you're at, as we celebrate communion, as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Ask him to help you see the seriousness of the storm of his just wrath for your sin. And ask him to help you to see how Jesus took the lightning so you could get the rainbow. Ask him to show you his war bow of peace instead of aimed at you, put up, laid up in the heavens as a sign of peace. Ask him to remind you of his commitment to you, foreshadowed in the rainbow and secured for you in Christ. Do you see why all the stories have to be about him? Do you see, like, Noah can't just be the story for you that's just like, 
hey, like, trust God no matter what other people think. Right? If, if that's all it is, like, it just crushes you under that. Like, if, no, if all the story of Noah is doing is telling you, like, hey, make sure that even if it's costly, that, like, in a corrupt generation, you do what's right. If that's all the story of Noah is, it just crushes you under the weight of the fact that you don't do that. And you suffer way less things than he did. And yet if the story of Noah is about showing us and pointing us to a God who will absolutely deal with sin, but who wants to do it without wiping you out, then it's good news for you. And the reality that Noah did not deserve to get rescued, but that he did, that's good news to you because you don't deserve to get rescued either. And so it leaves us in this spot, in the midst of this tension of sin, and God's just judgment of it. It leaves us in this tension of the hope that we have, knowing that he wants to do it and that he has done it without crushing you. And when that happens for you, when you see that the story of Noah and the covenant God makes with him isn't about you and what you're supposed to do and about the parts you need to live up to, but if it's about him and all he's done, then what happens is the story fills you with love for him. And it fills you with a longing to live for him. And with a joy that comes from knowing that he keeps his promises to you. Not because you're faithful, but because he is. And Noah's story gets to be good news that it can't be when it's not about Jesus. And so my prayer for you this week has been that you might see Jesus in the pages of Noah's story in Genesis 8 and 9. That you might see his name written in all the pages in the Old Testament that the good news of the gospel, it's the peace that makes all the other puzzle work together. And that you might see life in seeing Jesus on every page. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you. And we are filled with a gratitude for you this morning as we come again to the reality that the rainbow reminds us that the flood shouldn't have stopped. And the rain shouldn't have ended. And that all of us should have been wiped out. But yet you are faithful, God, to keep your promises to save sinners who don't deserve it. And to be faithful to unfaithful people. And so we pray, Jesus, that you might help us to long to obey you, not out of fear, but out of joy. And that we might see you as the point of all the stories and that we might see your faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness as the kind of good news that fuels our love and obedience for you. God, we're thankful that even though our hearts are full of sin, you are full of grace that overcomes it. And might your grace foreshadowed Jesus in the rainbow, secured in the death of Christ on the cross. Might it be good news that fuels a life lived for you. We pray. Amen.